So welcome. I'm Keith Whittington. I'm the actor direct, acting director of the James Madison uh, program for this year. Um, and uh, thank you for coming. I welcome you to the uh, 2004 uh, Charles E. Test MD Distinguished uh, Visiting uh, Scholar Seminars. Uh, this is the first of three of these seminars that we'll have over the course of the month um, with Professor David Novak. Uh, the next one will be meeting uh, next week, uh, same time, same place, uh, on November 8th um, on the theme of Religious Liberty, the Philosophical Claim. Uh, the final uh, session will be on Monday, November 22nd, so we'll skip a week and then come back on the 22nd, uh, again, in the same location at 4.30, and that will be on Religious Liberty the theological claim. Um, this week, uh, we're very pleased uh, to do the first of the lecture series on religious liberty, the political claim, um, which I think will be uh, quite an interesting um, lecture, so I'm looking forward to it. And we have an excellent uh, speaker to guide us through um, this issue. Uh, David Novak holds the J. Richard and Dorothy Schiff Chair of Jewish Studies as Professor of the Study of Religion and Professor of Philosophy at the University of Toronto, where he's been uh, since 1997. Uh, he is also a member of the University College and the Joint Center for Bioethics. Um, from 1997 to 2002, uh, he was the director of Jewish Studies program uh, there as well. Um, he was trained at the University of Chicago, uh, as well as um, uh, Jewish uh, Theological Seminary of America, and received his, his PhD at uh, Georgetown uh, University uh, in 1971. Um, he's the, the founder, the vice president, and coordinator of the Jewish Law Panel of the Union for Traditional Judaism and is a faculty member at the Institute for Traditional Judaism at Teaneck, New Jersey, um, as well as very active in a variety of other uh, boards and activities. He's the author um, of 11 books, uh, including most recently uh, uh, Confidential Rights, um, a study in Jewish uh, political theory um, published by our own uh, Princeton University Press, uh, which won the award from the American Academy of Religion for Best Book uh, in Constructive Religious Thought uh, in the year uh, 2000. Um, so we're very pleased uh, to have him here today uh, to talk on uh, questions that he is uh, very familiar with and has thought um, a lot about. Uh, and I hope you'll, you'll help me in welcoming him uh, to the first um, of the test lectures for this year. Thank you. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I don't say that in a perfunctory way because I actually am part of the uh, James Madison program in American Ideals and Institutions, uh, and it's become a quite an important part of my life. So I'm uh, especially pleased and honored to uh, have been invited to give the Charles Test Lectures for uh, this year. Um, the lecture is divided in several parts, and I think it's just helpful in terms of following it if uh, uh, I pause between the sections and uh, uh, give the uh, topic heading of each section. Section one is religious liberty and the American story. Religious liberty is something largely taken for granted by most of us who live in constitutional democracies. After all, who could deny that liberty? Is there someone in a position of political authority stopping any of us from worshiping or not worshiping wherever, however, and for whatever reason we please? More particularly, isn't the founding cultural story of the United States of America celebrated by the one holiday we actually founded, Thanksgiving Day. And of course, we also invented Independence Day, the 4th of July, but that never developed any of the cultural appeal of Thanksgiving Day. Every November, we once again celebrate how in 1621 at Plymouth Rock, our Pilgrim Fathers, 
and mothers and sons and daughters, first celebrated their right to worship according to their conscience, according to what they believed to be their sacred duty. Indeed, it was for that right, perhaps even more for their having been saved as a community from starvation, despite the loss of many individuals, that the pilgrims truly did give thanks. By so doing, they've inspired many of us to do likewise as a nation with our families every year. Also, it seems to me that this might explain why we have no such similar celebration for the earlier settlement of this country by Englishmen, namely the Jamestown Settlement of Virginia in 1607. That might well be because these early settlers came here for purposes of conquest, enrichment, exploitation, and enslavement, purposes so much less exalted and less inspiring than the quest for religious liberty. Indeed, the story of Jamestown could have just as easily been the story of Spanish or French colonization of the New World. But what happened at Plymouth Rock was qualitatively different from the other settlements of North America, even those of fellow Englishmen, whose primary interests were certainly not religious. The American story, as we now like to tell it, is very much the story of English America, a point made most recently by Samuel Huntington, albeit with too much nationalistic hyperbole, bordering on racism. But regarding religious liberty, that American story comes out of a basic English story, to be sure. And as for earlier settlements of America by Spaniards and Frenchmen, the Spaniards were conquered by English-speaking settlers by the middle of the 19th century, and the French were in effect sold to English-speaking settlers by Napoleon in the Louisiana Purchase of 1803. Thus, they too, like the conquering English settlers before them, had to become attuned to a notion of religious liberty their earlier national identities had by no means prepared them for. Most other subsequent immigrants to these shores have come here for cultural reasons remarkably similar to those of the pilgrims. Even African Americans, the one major group of Americans forcibly brought here in chains as slaves, had to see their story as a pilgrim-like story of liberation from slavery, both political and spiritual, on the way to redemption. They had, that had to be their story with all its biblical overtones in order for African Americans to become willing participants in the American story. No one in recent times made that point better than the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Thus we have seen the adoption of an essentially English story. Even those adopting, those adopting it have not had to become white, Anglo-Saxon, or Protestant in the process. By their very perilous move to what was for them as Europeans was a, str a strange, savage, and most uncertain land, the pilgrims were exercising their religious liberty in a way that indicated, to use more modern language, a truly existential commitment. More specifically, they were thanking God for getting that out from under the ecclesiastical clutches of an established state religion, the Church of England, from whom they had separated. But let it be remembered that the pilgrims had left England after a short experimental sojourn in the Netherlands. It was there they decided to risk being English Calvinists in a far-off English colony rather than becoming Dutch Calvinists in a land where they would have to make a political break with their past by becoming citizens of a foreign polity. In the Netherlands, they would also have had to make a break with their cultural past by seeing their children quickly adopting Dutch as their new mother tongue. Politically, the pilgrims wanted to remain loyal to the British crown, though that was the crown worn on the head of the very same king, who was also the head of the very same church from whom they had separated in order to form their own religious community. And unlike the Mennonites, for example, they had no problem recognizing the moral legitimacy of the humanly created state 
and participating therein. The pilgrims very much wanted to remain the English Protestants they had been for almost a century. In their own time, the pilgrims were called separatists, unlike the more numerous and more powerful Puritans of Massachusetts Bay Colony, who never officially separated from the Church of England, but only wanted to reform it. In that sense, the Puritan political vision was remarkably similar to, if not actually copied from, John Calvin's theological political state in Geneva a century before. Moreover, these same Puritans were most anxious to establish their own religious denomination in the New World, something the pilgrims consciously eschewed. The pilgrims, followed by Roger Williams in Rhode Island, who himself had separated from the theocracy, or although clerisy is the more accurate name for it, of Massachusetts Bay Colony, Pilgrims set a strong precedent for the idea that religious allegiance does not preclude allegiance to the state any more than allegiance to the state must subsume the religious allegiances of each and every citizen and therefore dictate them. In 17th century America, the most the pilgrims of Plymouth Colony, which was eventually subsumed into Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1691, the most they could do was to try to forge for themselves the status of religious exceptionalism, like those who after 1688 in England came to have the status of dissenters. In other words, they did not ask for the, the, the disestablishment of a state church, only that they not be required to pay allegiance to that state church. Nevertheless, the pilgrims did set the stage for the eventual separation of church and state that came with the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights, the so-called non-establishment clause, almost a century and a half after the Puritan settlement in Boston and its environs. For most of us, this separation of church and state lies at the core of what we mean by religious liberty. Thus, if the state in any of its institutions is not telling us what to do or not to do when it comes to religion, we are safe in our religious liberty. Despite all this, though, many of us feel threatened in our religious liberty. There are those who feel threatened by the so-called religious right, believing that its political power is designed to force upon them a religion they do not want. And there are those who consider themselves religious, left, right, or center, politically and economically, who feel threatened by forces in our society who regard any public religion to be inimical to authentic democracy. Some have named the, the ideology of these forces secular humanism. But if there is to be genuine political discourse in our society, we need to be able to rationally present our own political view vis-a-vis -vis religious liberty and defend it from the more irrational charges of its opponents, whether that be the charge of a religious coup d'etat or the charge of a secularist coup de grace. This process of reasoning must begin with some initial clarification of what we mean by religion. That is what Richard John Newhouse has called religion in the public square. Accordingly, we need to clarify what we mean by religious liberty. Since almost everyone would agree the question of religious liberty is important, both for society and ourselves as individual persons, we should try to clear up some of this confusion by proposing conceptual definitions, however tentative for these key terms, and then show how they suggest, if not actually propose, certain basic political positions. Neutrality towards the available political options regarding political liberty is not itself an option for any responsible citizen inasmuch as one cannot hide from a question that stalks the citizenry at every significant turn. In fact, writing around the time of the pilgrims in America, albeit in Latin and the Netherlands, the philosopher Baruch Spinoza devoted perhaps his most enduring work to this, the 
theological-political question, which is still very much the larger question of our society, as it was a question for our 17th century ancestors. The question of the separation of church and state is only a subset of that larger theological-political question, a larger question that is no doubt perennial. Now, not being a lawyer, much less a constitutional scholar, I shall not pursue with you today the complicated politics and jurisprudence of religious liberty in general and and church-state separation in particular in the United States or in any other polity, for that matter, like Canada, where I now live and work. On these more specific questions, I can only recommend to you who are assembled here today under the auspices of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, the wonderful, learned, and insightful study separation of church and state by Professor Philip Hamburger of the University of Chicago Law School. Furthermore, despite the fact that I am a scholar of Jewish law and theology, I cannot have any expert opinion on the question of church-state relations even in the Jewish state of Israel, for Israel is not civilly governed by Jewish law, and it does not see its mandate to be coming from Jewish theology even in principle. And that is a fact, neither a complaint nor an endorsement, by the way. Instead, I would like to discuss with you what I, as an ordinary citizen and non-specialist in American law and politics, think religious liberty means, and how that meaning impacts upon politics, philosophy, and theology in a constitutional democracy like our own and beyond. I can only claim some expertise in the areas of theology and philosophy, but not in the area of secular law and politics. Yet it is with the political question I wish to begin since the most immediate location of the question of religious liberty is in the realm of politics. The historical point made above was only made to show how the question of religious liberty is ubiquitous in the American story from the very beginning and how religion and politics have been continually intertwined with each other in that story. Part two, rights and liberties. Since we have seen that religious liberty is so central to the American story, we need to examine now what we mean by the term religious liberty and how it impacts upon our public life today. Most people would see liberty to be synonymous with having a right. But what does it mean to have a right? I would define a right to be a justified claim of one person upon another person or persons. Making the claim itself is the exercise of a legally recognized right. Liberty, though, is not so much a claim itself as it is what is being claimed. When I claim religious liberty for myself from other persons, especially from the state as a corporate person, I am claiming two things or one of two things. Minimally, I am claiming non-interference in the practice of the religion of my choice, what Isaiah Berlin called negative liberty. But this negative liberty is not the same as what Louis de Brandeis called the right to be let alone. Liberty is much more than a lone individual matter. Maximally, I am claiming assistance in the practice of the religion of my choice, what Berlin called positive liberty. In the case of negative liberty, the state's duty is one of passive restraint. In the case of positive liberty, the state's duty is one of active support. Now, most of us, I think, would settle for religious liberty in the negative sense, fearing that the active support of religion by the state could easily turn into the imposition of the religion of those having the most political power over everyone else. For those having little or no political power, that possibility raises the specter of religious coercion, what the pilgrims feared from the Church of England. But even those who share the religion 
of the politically powerful, need also worry that the possible imposition of their religion on those weaker than themselves will inevitably corrupt their own religion for them and cause those upon whom their religion has been imposed to despise it, maybe even cause themselves to despise their own religion as well. Nevertheless, there are times when people do have to seek some active support from the state for the sake of their religious liberty, and they should do so. Now, regarding negative liberty, the non-interference I seek must also be a claim for all those who want to practice their own religion, that is, liberty for religion, better for religions, as well as liberty from religion, that is, liberty from the imposition of any religion, either by the state or by any private person or group of persons. Without my willingness to make my own claim to my own religious liberty for everyone in general, whether that be to practice a religion or not to practice any religion, my own claim for myself alone smacks of special pleading. At most, making myself an exception to a general rule rather than being an instance for a general rule would be a plea for tolerance. Yet is that not tantamount to presenting my way of life as being so irrelevant to the life of civil society itself that the state need not be bothered with interfering in it. But that could only be the case if my religion, as well as the religion of others, made no public moral claims upon me or upon society itself. That is, if religion were simply the practice of some arcane, maybe even quaint, rituals. So my claim to religious liberty should be ordinary, not extraordinary, a point to which I shall return towards the end of this lecture. The fact is, there is no religion that does not make moral claims upon its own adherence. Moreover, there is no religion that does not make moral claims upon a wider society when its adherents live there together with the adherents of other religions or no religion. Morality, whether specific or general, is a system of claims and counterclaims. When claims is a person, one is claimed by other persons. Morality manifests itself as the systematic correlation of rights and duties. Since religion is such a powerful moral presence in its midst, the state must either respect or disrespect the moral claims of the religions in its midst. The call for respect or disrespect indicates relations far more intense than those indicated by tolerance or intolerance. One can ignore someone whose eccentricity is tolerated. One cannot, however, ignore phenomena like historical religions whose very phenomenality is so morally laden. As Aristotle best argued, ethics and politics are two sides of the same coin. Humans are by their very nature ethical political beings. All morality, as the Catholic philosopher Alistair McIntyre has perceptively argued, is unintelligible outside a real political context. And when there is genuine social respect for the religions that the members of society have chosen to be part of, we then have true multiculturalism. When the term is properly understood, it is anything but a cover for the type of cultural relativism that leads straight to moral nihilism. Authentic multiculturalism is when a variety of cultures conclude that they hold certain moral norms in common just as much as they conclude that they hold certain other moral norms separately. That is not in common. The norms the various cultures do hold in common are already so generally prevalent that we can assume, indeed insist, that the burden of proof be on those who would deny them, not on those who have been traditionally upholding them. To be sure, these general norms only comprise part of the overall teaching of any culture, and in fact, not even the most important part of that normative teaching. 
Yet it is the only part of that normative teaching which is able to make claims on a society wider than the borders of the cultural community itself. Thus Maimonides, the great 12th century Jewish jurist, uh, theologian, and philosopher, stated about the prohibition of shedding innocent blood, which is certainly the chief example of this multicultural moral commonality, as follows, quote, even though there are iniquities more serious than bloodshed, they do not entail the destruction of civilization, Yeshua Shalom, like bloodshed. Even idolatry, and it goes without saying, forbidden marital relations, arayot, and Sabbath desecration are not like bloodshed, close quote. In other words, greater generality does not mean greater importance at the level of the transcendent horizon of any culture. What Maimonides following the Talmud terms, what is between humans and God. Nevertheless, greater generality does mean there is more importance at the interhuman or political level of human existence for what has a prima facie intelligibility to all rational persons and what in fact is constantly found to be in effect in those cultures who value human personhood per se. I might add that much of what today is called spirituality, that is metaphysical type meditation outside the context of religious traditions, seems to be so attractive to otherwise secular people because it makes no moral demands on those who engage in it. But along these lines, could one imagine anything like the clash between King Henry II and Archbishop Thomas of Becket, for example, if Becket were only engaging in private spirituality rather than engaging in very public moral admonition of his fellow Christians and the state itself in matters of elementary justice? King Henry would have probably thought that such spirituality would happily keep Becket out of political mischief. And Beckett was not martyred because he was spiritual, in this current sense of the term, anyway. Three, ethical community. When we are dealing with religious liberty, we are dealing with religion. And when we are dealing with public religion, which, is, which, seems is, which it seems is the only religion that can bear the name coherently, we have culture. In many ways, religion culture is a language, one that comprises both words and deeds. Its morality comprises the main part of what we could call its active grammar. As Wittgenstein pointed out so accurately, there is no such thing as a private language. Language being communication between communicators necessarily takes place outside any proverbial closet, as the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas has shown so well. Language being essentially a political medium is always morally laden, even when moral demands are not always its explicit content. Multiculturalism is best expressed when it shows that there are some areas where the moral grammar of different cultures overlap. Nevertheless, that overlapping, a favorite term of the American philosopher, late American philosopher John Rawls, although not accidental, is still not truly universal. In the political sphere, it enables religious coalitions, as it were, to make some general claims upon the body politic. The question of ethical universality which is more than just generality, must wait for our philosophical investigation of religious liberty in the next lecture. I would define culture as the substance of the life of an historical community, those normative activities that give the particular community its identity in the world, which bind the members of that community to each other both contemporaneously and intergenerationally. Moreover, these cultures inevitably see themselves against a transcendent horizon that is, they are concerned with how they are an integral part of the cosmos, the universal order. At this level, we are dealing with religion, even if, as in the case with Buddhism, the ultimate cosmic principle is not a personal god. 
At the level of the interhuman, such a community is what Kant called an ethical commonwealth, ein ethisches Gemeineswesen. At the level of the divine human relationship, such a community is what Jews would call Knesset Yisrael, the congregation of Israel, what Christians would call the ecclesia, the church, and what Muslims would call the ummah, the people. Clearly, these three respective designations of religious cultures refer to much more than a mere aggregate of historically developed institutions. Each of them has a significance that is transcendent, even mystical. The interchangeability of culture and religion, religion and culture, comes out in the very Latin etymology of our word culture. Most scholars see the root of cultura to be colere, which means to cultivate. One can cultivate a place in the sense of inhabiting it with others. That is its ethical meaning. One can also cultivate or attend the objects of religious concern, cultus. That is its cultic or religious meaning. No culture, that is, the way of life in a historically continuous people, has been without its cult, without its religious practices and what they intend. Thus, when one deals with the question of culture, one cannot avoid the God question. But how that question of God is addressed in the political discourse of a secular polity is no simple matter. Members of religious communities cannot expect a public answer to the God question that is a simple yes, and secularists cannot expect a public answer to that same question that is a simple no. I shall address the God question somewhat more directly in the next lecture on religious liberty and philosophy, and most directly in the concluding lecture on religious liberty and theology. In a democratic polity such as ours, claims to religious liberty are made by and for the sake of an ethical community. A secular polity is in a position to cogently judge the political validity of the ethical claims made upon it and whether it is to respond to them or not. But a secular polity is in no position to judge the validity of strictly religious claims other than to see them as part and parcel of the cultural life of an ethical community. Thus, a secular polity is in no position to judge the validity of the revelation transmitted by any ethical community as its founding event and the special religious claims that revelation makes upon the members of that ethical community. Accordingly, religious liberty is quite different from what is usually seen to be freedom of thought, which turns out to be some sort of individual preference, a private right or right to privacy. Religious liberty is the claim an historical continuous, historically continuous ethical community makes upon a secular polity. The claim to religious liberty is a public claim made to elicit a public response. Almost all private rights, with the exception perhaps of the right to individual life, are entitlements from society that can be easily taken away, hopefully with good cause. Thus, for example, think of how easily one's right to private property is taken away whenever the state transfers wealth through the exercise of its power of taxation. The most we can hope for is that this right of the state is not exercised capriciously, that it is exercised by truly authorized persons, and that it is directed with clear vision towards the common good. But our whole democratic tradition seems to regard the right to religious liberty to be more than an entitlement, at least more than a human entitlement. Thus, tying this religious right, this right to religion, and even the right to be free of religion to notions of privacy, let alone thinking that privacy is some sort of absolute priority over the public realm, however conceived, is both confused in its logic and unable to find any true precedence in fact. No one today has, has pointed this out better than Judge Robert Bork, especially in his criticism of recent Supreme Court decisions that confuse permissions of privacy from the state with rights that are truly prior to the state, both historically and philosophically. In this Bork and 
those like him are genuine conservatives who can be enlisted in the defense of religious liberty, unlike economic libertarians who think they are conservatives, but who see the right to private property to be a moral absolute rather than a relative desideratum. We shall examine the distinction, this distinction more fully in the next lecture on religious liberty and philosophy. Four, ethical claims. Whereas the right to religious liberty was usually beyond dispute in the past, at present it is under attack when it comes to the ethical claims traditional religious communities have been making upon the state, and especially the ethical claims these communities make in matters of sexuality and the definition of what constitutes a family in our society. For most people, their notions of what is their family and what is their community are inextricably bound up with each other. This is becoming apparent primarily in the great debate on the question of same-sex marriage, a question that now seems to have overtaken the debate on abortion in popular attention. Like the debate on abortion, the debate on same-sex marriage, too, is largely a debate between religious people and secularists in our society, even though some religious people are in favor of same-sex marriage and some secularists are opposed to it. Nevertheless, the religious people who are in favor of same-sex marriage are hard-pressed to show how such a radical innovation can be justified by the sources of their own tradition. And secularists who are opposed to same-sex marriage are equally hard-pressed to show that their opposition is not based on mere nostalgia or their, how their opposition is not based on their opposition to marriage altogether. That is, same-sex same couples should not be afforded civil marriage because nobody should be afforded civil marriage. In fact, though, that opposition to the secular recognition of same-sex unions as marriages has come almost exclusively from religious quarters. Hence, most of the proponents of same-sex marriage have argued that limiting marriage to heterosexual couples, as has been international, multicultural practice until recently, is a form of religious coercion, even though that limitation is certainly not being advocated by any one particular religious tradition to the exclusion of all others. That raises the whole question of whether morality, for most people anyway, is derived from religion or not. We shall examine that question quite extensively in the next lecture on religious liberty and philosophy. But now suffice to say that religious coercion is only contrary to the Constitution of the United States and the Charter of Rights and Responsibilities of Canada when it is the establishment of one religion as the moral arbiter of society. And here by religion I mean a culture that is grounded in an event of divine revelation in history, one whose content is then transmitted and developed, traditio, throughout history, and one that is finally completed at the end of history, the eschaton. However, it is not religious coercion, it seems to me, when there is a moral consensus among a variety of religious traditions and even seemingly non-religious traditions like English common law on any particular question of public practice like marriage. Now, when proponents of same-sex marriage complain about the imposition of the Judeo-Christian religion on society, they're complaining about a phantom of their own imagination. The fact is, there is no such thing as the Judeo-Christian religion. Instead, there are two religions, Judaism on the one hand and Christianity on the other. Now, these two religions, essentially, different as indeed they are, have certain things in common. For many, the most important thing Judaism and Christianity have in common is an almost identical list of basic moral norms. So it is correct to speak of a Judeo-Christian morality. Nevertheless, this is not a morality that Jews and Christians made up together. Rather, it is a common morality that Jews and Christians accepted separately and then discovered that their respective acceptances are virtually identical because they were made for much the same reason. That is especially the case as regards the sanctity of human life and the sanctity of marriage as an institution 
for a man and a woman to form a permanent union for the primary but not exclusive purpose of begetting and raising children. Moreover, although Christianity received its moral sexual morality through Judaism, around the year 1000, European and later even non-European Jews accepted the Christian definition of marriage as being monogamous, one man and one woman. The exact reasons for that initial acceptance, however, is still quite obscure, but I would like to think that Jews accepted the Christian definition of monogamous marriage as being true to the spirit, if not the exact letter of Judaism itself. Now, in the public debate over same-sex marriage, religious people need not only defend themselves from the charge that they are imposing their religion on society at large, but they must also see the movement for same-sex marriage to be an assault on their religious liberty. That is because of the way the movement for same-sex marriage has made its own case. Since same-sex marriage has not been allowed by any civil jurisdiction until quite recently, proponents of same-sex marriage have had to argue that the previous exclusion of homosexual couples from the institution of marriage has been a form of unjust discrimination. This exclusion from the public institution of marriage has been compared to the by now illegal practice of denying African Americans access to public educational facilities. But what about religious communities who deny homosexual couples the sacrament or covenant of marriage? Furthermore, the clergy of these religious communities in the United States and Canada and in many other democracies also function as civil servants de facto since they are required to be licensed by the state to perform marriage ceremonies. In fact, the practice of most clergy today is that they refuse to celebrate the wedding of any couple who have not first obtained a civil marriage license. It is also standard rabbinical practice to require a civil divorce decree in hand from a couple seeking a religious divorce before proceeding with the religious dissolution of their marriage known as a get. Nevertheless, some American clergy have faced civil penalties, for example, for having not required a civil marriage license from widows and widowers whom they have united in a second marriage. It seems these couples only wanted a religious ceremony for their second marriage to each other, but not when registered with the state because they did not want to lose their survivor benefits from their first marriages. As far as the state is concerned, they wanted to be unmarried widows and widowers, but they did not want to be living in sin when it comes to the law of God as taught by their religious community. Apparently, defrauding the state did not raise their moral hackles, as the possibility of living together surely did. Uh, but wouldn't there be a similar probability of civil penalties for couples living in jurisdictions where same-sex marriages are already civilly recognized if these same-sex same couples only wanted a religious ceremony? Couldn't the clergy who celebrated these religious-only marriages be subject to civil penalties as well? Now, many religious people would not want to participate in the institution of civil marriage when that institution now includes same-sex unions, for to do so would be giving tacit approval to the state's legitimatizing, even blessing, sexual unions that are morally odious to most religious people. That is much more than religious people tolerating the refusal of the state to interfere in the private sexual relations of consenting adults. Marrying is a public act requiring public approval in order to be valid. Involvement in civil marriage, whether as a participant or a celebrant, entails one's endorsement of the institution itself and thus the marriages of all its other participants as well. It is like voting in an election. When I cast my ballot, I thereby endorse the right of every other voter to vote as well. Now, despite the probability of civil penalties, though, I know of several Protestant clergymen in Ontario where same-sex marriage is now legally recognized who have publicly announced that they will no longer sign mar civil marriage documents 
and that they will only officiate at weddings that conform to their religious law because signing civil documents that attest to what is now accepted as marriage in Ontario violates their religiously formed conscience. Thus, they cannot do so in good faith. But how can these clergy, as de facto civil servants, refuse homosexual couples the wedding ceremony when it has become, in some places, their civil right? Aren't these clergy unjustly, that is arbitrarily and prejudicially, discriminating against a class of persons, namely homosexuals? To avoid this kind of charge that could be made against a cleric as a de facto civil official, a few clergymen in Ontario have removed their names from the provincial registry of licensed marriage officiants altogether. Now, to assuage the fears of religious people that their clergy might be forced to celebrate same-sex weddings, thereby blessing same-sex marriages, two suggestions have been recently floated. One, it is suggested that when the statute defining marriage as an essentially heterosexual union is changed, clergy of those religious communities who do not recognize same-sex marriages will be exempted from any obligation to celebrate weddings of same-sex couples in the way they are not required to celebrate weddings of couples who are not permitted to marry according to their own religious law. So, for example, an Orthodox rabbi will not be subject to civil prosecution if he refuses to celebrate the wedding of two homosexuals in the same way he is not subject to civil prosecution when he refuses to celebrate the marriage of a Jew and a non-Jew. Another example would be a Catholic priest who refuses to celebrate a same-sex wedding in the same way he refuses to celebrate a wedding between two divorced persons. In such cases, the rabbi or the priest would be exercising his right to religious liberty. Two, it is suggested more radically that the state simply get out of the marriage business altogether. That is, instead of providing domestic partnerships, as some jurisdictions like Vermont, for example, now do for the minority of couples, all of whom seem to be homosexual, who cannot marry under present marriage law, the state should simply establish an institution of domestic partnership and leave marriage in effect to religious communities and their own adherents. It is argued that this is what has been the case in France for over a century, namely citizens first register their marriage civilly, and then, if they so choose, they can get a religious ceremony from whatever religious community will celebrate the union as a marriage. It is interesting, though, that the present time France does not recognize same-sex marriages and does not seem likely to do so in the near future. Both of these suggestions, however, still constitute an assault on religious liberty, especially in the ethical claims religious communities make upon the state and that for the following reasons. To claim an exemption from accepted public practice has been the tactic employed by what are usually called sectarian religious groups. Groups like the Amish or the Hasidim asked to be exempted from many public practices on the grounds of their right to religious liberty, in their case, their right to communal liberty, that is to be a quasi-independent polity. The hidden premise of their arguments is one that cannot be explicitly made as a legal argument in a democratic context, since a secular democracy cannot recognize the political jurisdiction of religious bodies. But this hidden premise can be explicated in a more informal social context. The premise is that these religious sectarians are not really members of the society at all, even if they are legally citizens of the state, that they regard themselves to be foreigners and want others to regard them as foreigners too. That is when it suits their own sectarian interests. The state frequently complies with these claims to be exceptional because these groups are regarded as being so bizarre and so numerically insignificant that for the most pragmatic reasons, it is simply not worth the bother of forcing them to be participants in a political order they really do not accept as being their own as well. Nevertheless, like all entitlements from the state, the right to be exceptional 
can easily be rescinded for reasons equally pragmatic. Furthermore, such an entitlement is more likely either not to be given or more quickly, quickly rescinded when the religious bodies to whom it has been given are both numerically more significant and more, most importantly, the members of these religious bodies very much regard themselves to be full participants in the political and social order. As such, they are neither marginal nor arcane foreigners, not in their own eyes, nor do they want to be in the eyes of their fellow citizens. In Canada, where in some provinces same-sex couples are already allowed to partake of civil marriage, clergy of those religious bodies who do not sanction same-sex marriage have so far been exempted from having to officiate at same-sex weddings. And in the legislation that is, being is to be presented to Parliament and upon which the Supreme Court of Canada will be asked for constitutional review, this exemption is explicit. But as with other such entitled exemptions, which are clearly at odds with the egalitarian logic of the legislation itself, religious people have good reason to be wary. They are well advised by scripture, quote, do not place your trust in princes, that they should be rightly suspicious of the tolerance of those in political power, quote, in whom there is no help, close quote. In fact, religious people don't have to imagine what could easily happen. It is already being publicly announced. Thus, in September of this year, political leaders in Quebec, the province where religion was once strongest in Canada, where it now seems to be the weakest, announced that they will not necessarily be bound by any exceptions stipulated in the new marriage, National Marriage Act for Canada. In other words, they will comply with the logic of the new marriage act more consistently than the politicians in English Canada are willing to do so far. And even though religion has been in steep decline in Quebec for the past two decades, whatever religion is left there is still overwhelmingly Roman Catholic. It is very unlikely that the Quebecois politicians, almost all of whom are either minimally practicing Catholics or who have, been, who have lapsed from Catholicism altogether, it is unlikely that these politicians will essentially tolerate, that is, ignore their present or former church by letting its opposition to the new law of the land go unchallenged. Surely they do not look upon l'Église catholique to be an insignificant sect they need only tolerate. It is clear that they fear whatever moral force the church still has in their society and will no doubt act to cripple it. Furthermore, even if there were to be such tolerance, it would be both ephemeral and essentially degrading to religious people who are not at all prepared to go into exile from a society upon which they have at least as much of a claim as the militant secularists who would have them treated as foreigners there. I can't imagine the political situation is all that different here in the United States. Think of Massachusetts with its large Catholic population, but whose Supreme Court has nonetheless recently authorized the registry of same-sex unions as marriages, thus making Catholic marriages, in effect, civilly exceptional. Another Canadian example illustrates how the state's ability to remove the communal right to religious liberty in civil society has already taken place, and I don't think there's anything peculiar to Canadian about this case. Last spring, a Catholic high school in Oshawa, Ontario, was sued because the school officials refused to allow an openly gay student to bring his boyfriend as his date to the school's senior prom. The gay student went to court to force the school to let him bring his boyfriend to the prom on the grounds that his civil rights were being violated, that he was a victim of sexual discrimination. By ruling in the student's favor that allowed the individual right of the gay student to trump, that allowed the individual right of the gay student to trump the communal right of the Catholic high school to require behavior to prevail at any of its student events, which is consistent with church teaching. To my mind and the mind of many other Canadians, the right to religious liberty of a community was violated in this court decision. 
Considering the climate of opinion in many Canadian and American courts, such challenges to the enforcement of communal norms, even on members of that community, will no doubt become more frequent. This is also due to the fact that in democracies such as ours, all religious affiliations are voluntary. That voluntariness is not only taken to apply generally, but specifically as well. So whereas the Catholic high school argued that the student's parents had enrolled him in the student voluntarily, something to which the student himself never seemed to object, thus implying acceptance of the school's moral norms, it was argued that this voluntariness also applies to each and every one of the school's norms. So if the student felt that his civil rights were being violated, he could demand that the school honor them. Now, as for the suggestion that the state get out of the marriage business altogether, that clearly implies the whole institution of civil marriage has been a mistake. Thus, rather than radically define it to a point where it loses any essential continuity with the way marriage has been understood in the past, those making this suggestion are arguing that we should act as if traditional, actually intertraditional marriage, which the state has heretofore recognized by its institution of civil marriage, that we should look upon this, at this venerable institution, as if it never existed at all. It's like the annulment of a particular marriage. It never was, even retroactively, since it should have never been when viewed retrospectively. Yet this too infringes on religious liberty, and that is because this suggestion does not understand very well how civil marriage came to be and why it provides an important benefit to the polity, that is why it well serves the interest of the state, which is the common good. In the 17th century, civil marriage arose in England primarily to provide the civil benefits of marriage to persons who were not members of any traditional religious community, either due to their own choice or due to the choice of religious communities to exclude them from membership. Civil marriage also arose as a result of Oliver Cromwell's attempt to remove the monopoly on marriage held by the Church of England. Nevertheless, civil marriage was not set up to replace traditional religious marriage, the type of a marriage it was assumed the vast majority of citizens would still obtain for themselves. In fact, civil marriage largely imitated religious marriage, especially in its adoption of the theretofore exclusively religious requirement of marital faithfulness, and therefore its adoption of the religious requirement that there be culpability for adultery. And because these moral obligations may not be overruled, even by the mutual consent of the marriage partners, think of what used to be called open marriage, that means civil marriage resembles a religious covenant more than it does a civil contract so far, that is. For this reason, it seems religious people have been willing to accept civil marriage as a social institution, and they've been willing to civilly register their own marriages with the state. Now, this acceptance of and participation in civil marriage by religious people indicates that they have approved of the reason the state takes an interest in marriage per se. The secular reason for the state's interest in marriage is that children are conceived through the sexual union of a man and a woman, and that children are best brought to birth and reared when that union is an ongoing process rather than a random event. That state has a clear, means that the state has a clear interest in the conception, birth, and effective nurturing to adulthood of its future citizens. That secular reason for the state's interest in marriage, as we've known it heretofore, is quite consistent with the religious reason for marriage and why religious communities promote marriage. The secular reason is consistent with the divine mandate, be, quote, be fruitful and multiply, quote, take wives and give birth to sons and daughters, which is because God has, quote, formed the earth to be a dwelling. That is, we truly inhabit the earth when we make our intergenerational home in it. Indeed, the secular state can advocate the imminent reason for that divine mandate, even though it cannot celebrate the transcendent source of that mandate. Children are best raised by the permanent union of the man and the woman responsible for their physical origin in the world. That is, those 
who conceived them in the first place. So religious people can well recognize that all children, even those whose parents, for whatever reason, do not want to be part of any religious community or cannot be part of any religious community, that all children deserve to have their own family intact. Thus, the state still has the duty to institutionalize the kind of marriage that is most likely to conceive children and raise them to maturity. To date, that is a heterosexual union primarily designed to be procreative. It is thus the duty of the state to privilege this institution of marriage for the sake of the children who usually emerge from it. The duty of the state to protect the traditional institution of marriage is in direct response to the right to life of every child conceived and to the right of every child born to have an intact family. All children have that right, despite the fact that, alas, more and more children in our society cannot exercise that right anymore because their natural parents refuse to respond to that right dutifully. All the more so, then, does the state have the duty to support and not dilute the institution of traditional marriage by generalizing it to the point where it can include any human relationship imaginable. The state should do this for the sake of every child born and growing up in its midst. If the state today, in many cases, is doing less and less to enforce these rights of every child, point usually missed by advocates of what now goes by the name of children's rights. The state still does and still continue to institutionalize traditional marriage for the sake of the common good of society. Part of that common good is the mental health of as many citizens as possible. By every sociological indication, children growing up in homes where they are cared for by the same two people who conceived them in the beginning, such children grow up to be happier and more productive citizens. This is not just a Judeo-Christian point. When Plato thought that the elite of his ideal polity would best be raised by the state itself, thus bypassing the traditional familial structure, his student Aristotle reminded us that those who grow up with no attachment to a natural family have no family-like attachment at all to extend to society as a whole. In other words, eliminating the specificity of family life best grounded in marriage as all our traditions, religious and secular, have basically known it, does not lead to a more general social commitment. Rather, it leads to the emptiness of personal homelessness in the world. As Hume recognized, moral sentiments are centrifugal, extending from the more intimate to the less intimate. They are not centripetal, beginning with the more general and then deriving the more intimate therefrom. For this reason, then, religious people can regard civil marriage as being consistent with even, and even enhancing, out of the positive liberty of which I spoke earlier in this lecture, enhancing their own sacramental or covenantal marriage. And for the same reason, ministers of religion, like myself, can not only sign the civil marriage registry in good conscience, but we can be happy to assist the state in its worthy institution of civil marriage, at least so far in most places in North America. Now, there are some religious people who have argued that if and when a state recognizes same-sex marriage, then their religious community and the person of its clergy should only celebrate religious wedding ceremonies and tell the people that if they want a civil ceremony as well, to do so on their own. More radically, these same-sex clergy, as we've seen, should tell a couple that they will celebrate their wedding religiously only if the couple avoids civil marriage altogether. Of course, considering the fact that there's now solid data indicating that from 35 to 40 percent of heterosexual couples in Canada who are living in long-term relationships are doing so without the blessing of either church or state, religious people opting out of civil marriage are hardly doing anything very daring. So if those more radical in their view of marriage than even the proponents of same-sex marriage want to kill the institution of marriage as we know it, they should convince religious people to opt out of it as fast and as numerously as they can. When the deserters outnumber the troops, the army will have to shut down. Yet were that to happen, it might well be that exclusively religious marriage would then become the only kind of marriage available in any recognizable sense of the term. In fact, this is the case today in Israel, where there's never been an institution of civil marriage. 
Along these lines, it is noteworthy that in Canada, where only 80% of the population profess belief in any deity, the percentage of those holding membership in a distinct community of God worshippers being still less, still over 90% of civil marriages are celebrated under religious auspices. As such, it would seem that even otherwise secular people still see civil marriage as beholden to the earlier traditional religious model. They prove that point by where and by whom they wish to be wed. So I think it quite likely that were marriage, however defined, to be replaced, not just supplemented, with a civil institution of domestic partnership, that most Canadians would continue to opt for religious marriage, and that far fewer of them would even bother with registering as domestic partners. Without the traditional term marriage, a sexually centered relationship otherwise named has all the luster of a driver's license. I can't imagine that the proponents of same-sex marriage don't know this too, and that is why they want to be included in the institution of marriage, not to abolish it altogether. And they also know that were civil marriage itself to be abolished, the proponents of traditional heterosexual marriage have an earlier historical location in which to be married, whereas the proponents of same-sex marriage have no such place to turn for a blessing. Finally, Speaking in terms of practical politics, since only 3 or 4% of the population is homosexual and is likely far less than half of that percentage are even interested in the bonds of matrimony, the departure of even far less than 90% of married couples in Canada from civil marriage would have far greater political consequences than including those same-sex couples who even want the institution of marriage at all. Despite the imagined scenario I've just speculated, there is no indication that the majority of the citizenry in either Canada or the United States want to change the definition of marriage. Therefore, it is a premature admission of defeat for religious people to assume that they have already lost their battle for religious liberty, which in this case means their multicultural understanding of the meaning of marriage. They need not become countercultural, then antisocial, and eventually outlaws. Accordingly, their vigorous legal and political defense of traditional marriage and family lies on the frontier of the defense of religious liberty in general. That is the politics of religious liberty as I see it. Nevertheless, politics without adequate reflection on the intelligible foundations of praxis quickly turns into the type of ideology that can be reduced to sound bites. To prevent that, we need to examine religious liberty as a philosophical issue. That, God willing, will be the subject of my next lecture. Thank you. Professor Novak's available for questions. It's a uh, Madison program tradition to take questions first from any students in the audience if, if they have any. Otherwise, we'll open it up more, more generally. How do you define so, a student? Uh, I will be checking IDs <laughs> for that. So failing that, then, we'll open for questions generally. Yes, ma'am. Could, could you stand up? It's a, I just found that if you stand up, we can hear the question. I don't have to repeat it. And, uh, Yes, that, that, that's, a, that, that, that's a very good question. Um, as for the question of, of, of animal sacrifice, I am, uh, uh, don't find that particularly offensive unless one is a vegetarian. Uh, 
But getting to the question of the Mormons, the Mormons are an interesting uh, phenomenon there because the Mormons are probably the, the most indigenous uh, religion to the United States. Um, and whereas Muslims are allowed to take more than one wife, they are not obligated to practice polygamy. In the early days of Mormonism, uh, the Latter-day Saints, uh, they, they were. This was considered to be a, a positive uh, uh, obligation. And we know that the Mormons uh, had to uh, actually uh, rescind that not only right but duty uh, in order to become part of the union. Uh, it's very interesting that in their theology, uh, the president of the church, who's called the prophet, actually had to receive divine revelation. Uh, and that's also interesting because the Mormons are the only group that I know who regard the Constitution of the United States to be divinely revealed. Uh, so along those lines, yes, there are certain um, um, limitations to, uh, to be sure uh, in terms of one's being able to um, uh, participate in, uh, in, in civil society. And religious traditions have uh, uh, done that. I mean, in the case of, of the Jewish tradition, for example, and this goes back to ancient times, uh, Jews had to be willing to accept the law of the land in civil and criminal matters as religiously binding, as a religious obligation uh, to ob obey that law. Uh, on very uh, flimsy grounds within the uh, tr uh, tradition itself, and yet subsequently there became a whole way of, 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 of justifying this. Um, this would very much, uh, uh, as I say, be the case. And, uh, and it would actually be interesting um, if uh, those within uh, the gay community, I mean, who, who obviously advocate same-sex marriage, um, were to define... Uh, what they regard as uh, a right and perhaps even a duty uh, in terms of, uh, of some sort of religious, in other words, uh, uh, some sort of religious commitment. In other words, that the, the doing this is, is commitment to, uh, to a prior, ontologically and historically prior uh, community. I mean, that, 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 that might be interesting. But clearly, yes, there are certain uh, limitations. And at least in our society to date, Jews, Christians, and now Muslims um, are willing to limit certain things uh, in order to be part of civil society uh, because, in the, at least in their respective traditions, these are rights and not duties, and rights can be waived. So, yes. Yes. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, taking the, the, the last question, I mean, just as kind of common sense, I mean, you talk about the patriarchs. Uh, two of the three patriarchs were polygamists. Uh, go back to the Bible and read about their marriages. Uh, Isaac and Rebecca, who were the monogamists, seemed on the whole, although they had some differences about child rearing, uh, but on the whole seemed to have uh, uh, been happier. But it became the, 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 
notion, you can see how this developed within uh, the Jewish tradition. Um, for example, uh, Maimonides uh, wanted to limit the right to take a second wife when in effect would be a, or concubinage especially, uh, as only limited to the ancient kings of Israel. Well, we don't have any of them anymore, so you really made it into kind of a de facto null class. Um, I, I personally think, as I say, we, we don't know the reasons for the ban on on polygamy. Uh, it's called the Chayron of Rabbeinu Gershom. Uh, all sorts of reasons are given. Uh, one reason was given by Rabbi Jacob Emden, a uh, 18th century uh, leading uh, uh, Jewish halachic authority in uh, Germany. And he argued, actually negatively, he said this is something that was forced upon us by the Christians. And uh, he suggested, I guess a very interesting man for any personal reason, he suggested a revival of concubinage. And actually, there are some people in the Jewish community for very technical legal reasons who, who've advocated that. But I think generally, it was accepted that monogamy is more in the spirit of uh, Manchel Cleveland's wife and they have trouble one flesh. And uh, uh, I, I think it's generally, with, so I, I indicated that I would like to say, since I don't know what the reason is, nobody else does either, that it was an acceptance that this is more in keeping with at least what marriage ought to be even um, um, you know, within the Jewish tradition. So that was, and the first, uh, about why Canada, yeah, why Canada is less religious than the United States. I think that one of the, 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 the prime reasons is precisely what I, what I was mentioning at the beginning of, of the paper. I mean, the, the American story is, founding story is initially religious. Um, I mean, Thanksgiving, is, is, for example, is, is, is an amazing holiday. I mean, even Orthodox Jews, most Orthodox Jews in the United States, you know, who are very careful not to you know, practice uh, the practice of the Gentiles, Celebrate Thanksgiving in, in, in one way or another. It's only kind of a very certain fringe on the right. I mean, some of this is regarded as something that they can uh, identify with. The American story is initially religious. The Canadian story is, first of all, um, it's, you know, it's hard to, who were the Canadian founders? Were they French? Were they English? Uh, were they half and half? Uh, and who were they? They were basically loyalists, people who were loyal to the British crown. Uh, but it had nothing to do with religious liberty of the people, you know, who, who came to Ontario. Uh, and French who came there basically, you know, to settle and uh, economically and uh, whatever, but this was not particularly uh, regarded as a religion. They were not going to regard themselves as pilgrims uh, even uh, subsequently, even though Quebec subsequently became, at least up to 30 years ago, the most Catholic society in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I mean, the precipitous decline of the influence of, of, of the Catholic Church on the culture uh, and polity of, of Quebec is is, uh, is, is incredible. Um, so I think that there are those uh, uh, a kind of reasons. And uh, I mean, even uh, uh, in, in talking with Canadian Jews, who in many ways are, 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 are had significant differences from American Jews, um, I, I tell them, I said, you cannot understand um, the commitment of the United States to the independence of the state of Israel without understanding American evangelical Protestant biblicism. You cannot understand. Again, there are lots of things that we do you cannot understand. It's very difficult for Canadians because it, it's, it, other than in, in some of the prairie provinces, you don't see that kind of uh, American-style uh, Protestant religion. So I would suspect that uh, that is the case, plus the fact that to a greater extent than the United States, I would say the, culture, the cultural elites in Canada very much look to Western Europe as their model rather than the United States. Uh, and, of course, we know what state religion is in, in most of uh, the countries of Western Europe. So, I mean, that's how I would kind of uh, indicate it. Uh, uh, yes, sir.
Yeah, this is, this is a fascinating uh, situation to uh, uh, introduce Sharia law. Um, it's being very much debated, and uh, uh, people in the Jewish community, I mean, because of the Israel-Palestine you know, conflict, don't, can't get a, a handle on it. But the interesting thing is, is I can only give the example of, of the Jewish community. Um, the Bet Din, the rabbinical court of, 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 of Toronto, not only deals with uh, quote, religious matters like marriage and divorce or ritual matters, you know, with, uh, certifying kosher uh, establishments and whatever. Um, they also function civilly in, 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 in two ways. One way, the last way, which is something which I have a hand in, uh, is that when I uh, was asked to file an affidavit, it was argued before the Supreme Court of Canada about this question of same-sex marriage, I approached the Orthodox Rabbinical Court and said to them that I felt that uh, it was in their interest uh, to sign on as, uh, with me on this, simply because if they didn't, people might get the impression from other segments of the Jewish community that this is what the Jewish tradition uh, teaches. So it's kind of almost kind of a form of blackmail, if you will. Uh, not quite. God forbid. Um, the second thing is is that uh, rabbinical courts uh, can function in areas of arbitration. Um, in fact, um, if both parties are willing to go to a rabbinical court, the, the, the civil courts are more than happy to get it off the docket and let it be decided by um, a rabbinical court. Uh, if that were the case, I suspect um, uh, there wouldn't be this uh, clamor over the use of Sharia law. Um, the clamor is about in areas of, for example, um, child custody, uh, marriage settlements, and this sort of thing. Uh, and that is, is considerable. One has to realize that, for example, that even though in Jewish law the marriage document, the ketubah, uh, which is not a contract, it has contractual elements, but it's, it's wrongly called a contract. Marriage document. Um, stipulates all sorts of things, which in ancient times, really, in medieval times, in fact, until modernity, had teeth in them. Uh, nowadays, it's all been settled in the civil courts, so that when we issue a Jewish divorce, we basically ask the woman, do you waive your right to uh, the ketubah? Because we, it, it has financial stipulations based upon currency of ancient Babylonia, so how do you know it's what it's worth? Uh, and we asked them to raise the I, I must share this story. Many years ago, when I was a part of a rabbinical court, uh, we was a, and as I mentioned here, you know, we, we don't give the rabbinical divorce until the, uh, uh, the civil divorce. It was a case of, uh, we used to read about a, a, a woman, that is put it this way, who got a very large settlement uh, in her divorce uh, settlement. And I remember my late revered teacher, Professor Boaz Cohn, uh, mentioned, he said, do you waive your right to the ketubah? She said, well, just a minute, just a minute. Well, what right do I have? And she, he said, well, you have a right to a monetary settlement. And she said, really, how much? And uh, he said, well, according to my, he was a very timid man, he said, according to my calculations, it's about $40. She said, are you kidding? <laughs> she said, I can afford to waive that right and whatever. So here again, the problem is not so much if individual Muslims wanted to sell, you know, settle it based upon arbitration, which can only be done in, in, when, when religious law is voluntary in a society. But what I've read about it, and I don't know too much about it, what I've read about it are cases of child custody, are cases of alimony, uh, and this sort of thing. And therefore, some even very traditional Muslim women are very much opposed to this. And, uh, but what this reflects is that the Muslim communities, in, and this could be in the United States as well, um, are much less experienced in dealing with a secular polity than Jews and Christians. Uh, because they didn't go through the French Revolution, they didn't go through the Enlightenment, they go through the American Revolution. 
And I think it's in the interest of those of us who want Muslims, qua Muslims, to be full participants in society, to, um, you know, share with them parents, for example, analogies that might be helpful to them in um, um, working out uh, uh, this problem. And uh, I, I've even suggested that uh, 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 several years ago we had a meeting with the Canadian government that it might uh, do well for Jewish-Muslim relations in Canada uh, if both communities said, look, we're going to bracket the whole Israel-Palestine question. We can't discuss it. We can't even deal with it here. And let's talk about how two diaspora communities survive in a, in a very different kind of, uh, of, of culture. And uh, uh, that, uh, that would... Uh, is a promising type of thing, but you can see you can see how Muslim you know Jews always said they were kind of thrown into modernity, unprepared for it. But look how Muslims have been thrown into modernity. I mean, even more so. And this is one example of it. And uh, I'm still waiting to read actually uh, uh, a, a written by a Qadi that is a Muslim dayan or judge, uh, you know, presenting the argument and seeing what it means before I can have opinion. But at least from what I've read in the papers, that's how it seems to uh, strike me. Um, yes, in the back there, sir. Very complicated question, I agree with you, but uh, and, and certainly I'm not opposed to uh, uh, in any way for religious, moral, or civil reasons uh, adoption. I have, uh, I have it in my own family. Um, but I still would say that uh, that birth parents who are either unwilling or unable to raise their child uh, are the exception rather than the rule. Uh, and granted, there are many, there are cases, of course, where children are better off uh, being raised by, by by somebody else, whether it's another family member or whether it's somebody who's who, who, who's adopted them. I, I, I fairly agree with that. However, I think that the overwhelming majority of children uh, are uh, best raised simply because I think that a, 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 and here again we get into very complicated issues, I think that a child has minimally a right to know who was responsible for their physical entry into, into the world. And I know that's very, very touchy and, uh, uh, and whatever, and I have very personal reasons for, 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 for holding that view. Uh, but I think that this is uh, something that has to uh, uh, be understood, and I think that it's something at least... Uh, 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 a social worker friend of mine who very much works with counseling people who adopt children, um, that uh, adoptive families and adoptive parents and children, uh, in many cases, can have a better relationship, but that they have to be aware that it is not quite the same. It is not, there's still these factors 
that have to be understood and, 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 and dealt with uh, in terms of, uh, you know, simply the, the honesty of, of the relationship. Um, I mean, for example, um, uh, I assume that your, your children are, are, are young, but I mean, you're going to have to deal with the question of when your child is asked by the family doctor, that, let's say, yeah, you know, is there a, is there a history? Yeah, is there a history of cancer? Or, you know, what are your and, and this is the and, and, and this is the type of thing. And I think that the at least what I understand is it seems to be the more, the more rational counseling of adoptive families is that this is something the family has to you know to deal with. And it's just just, just you know, uh, so I, I agree with you. But what I'm saying is that I think that the prima facie um, um, right, uh, as it were goes to what I would consider to be the natural family, and that the exceptions are dealt with by an institution called uh, 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 adoption. And I think that that, uh, you know, is, is very much the case, even though I, this is a, you know, uh, a very chancy type of area. And, I mean, how, how do we deal with the question, uh, on the one hand, protecting the privacy of parents who've given up their children, and on the other hand, children who say, I have a right to know who you know, sired me and who bore me and, and, and this sort of thing. So it, it, it is quite complicated, but I would simply indicate that, um, uh, I mean, there are some cases to be sure. Uh, but I mean, and, and in the usual case of people who adopt children are people who, for whatever reasons, are unable to or have a child or more children or, 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 or this sort of thing. And that is understood. But that, that, that's a very, very complex uh, uh, type of question. But I think that you would agree that, uh, that the majority of people uh, who um, uh, uh, conceive and birth children ought to raise them to to maturity, and that they should have very good reasons why they don't, why why they can't do it. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very, it's a, it's an extremely um, complicated matter, but I think that what the tr institution of traditional marriage did uh, or has done uh, reasonably well, as much as anything can be done by human beings well, uh, is to impress upon people um, the fact that if they are going to bring children to the world that at least prima facie they have a responsibility to be the ones who raised that child. Uh, and, that, and, and, and that therefore even morally they should have very good reasons uh, that in a way are, have to be exceptional uh, to why they are unwilling or unable to do so. And, but I mean, it's a tremendous area there, but, I, but, as, but, but as I say, I, I will stick with the fact that I think that children do have uh, a right that obviously there are dispensations from uh, to be raised by the people who uh, conceived them and, 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 and bore them, even though we know of cases where it's clearly they're better off being raised by somebody else, uh, whether adopted or not. Yeah. Let's get one more question. Yeah. Uh, Dan? Yeah. Could you stand up? I think we could hear you better. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
Um, I think that the um, the question of rights, um, I mean, especially in the context of Judaism, and there's those who've argued, you know, that uh, Judaism has duties, not rights. Uh, there's a very famous article by a, a much lamented, uh, died very young uh, law professor, Robert Cover at, at Yale, uh, has tremendous influence, quoted constantly. Um, I think that uh, clearly one can show that all duties presuppose a right. In other words, a duty is a response to a claim that's made by somebody, and it's either a justified or an unjustified claim. Um, I think that the problem with rights talk, as pointed out, for example, by Marianne Glendon in her book, Rights Talk, is that in, in our society, it has devolved solely on the individual. Um, I would say that, um, and this is where the Canadian experience has been very important, there are such a thing as communal rights, uh, and that they have to be understood. Uh, and uh, this has been worked out by Charles Taylor, or, or he, you know, he very much devotes some of his uh, uh, talk to this. And um, I think that religious liberty is one of those rights. Um, the example that I always give is Thomas More. And Thomas More says to King Henry VIII, I am the king's good servant, but God's first. He's not talking about his common Thomas More as individual Englishman. He's speaking of Thomas More as part of the Catholic Church, which considers itself to be the body of Christ. Now, it's Thomas More claiming the communal right that the church has first claim on his moral allegiance, and the state conflicts with that claim by setting up uh, King Henry as the head of the church when, uh, uh, when according to Moore, he's not, uh, then he has to choose, and he's willing to, uh, to uh, die as a martyr. And I think that in the traditional Jewish system, this is what my book, Covenant Rights, was devoted to, was that in the Jewish system, one can look upon the covenant as a negotiation of rights between God, the community, and individual persons. And the covenant is continually being renegotiated based upon the rights and counter claims and counterclaims made by uh, uh, these three parties, even to an extent where in the covenant, both communities and persons even have, are given as entitlements, but irrevocable entitlements by God himself, by promise, uh, claims upon God. Um, so I think that once one uh, indicates that the problem with, 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 with rights, talking rights concept in our society, is that it's solely devolved on the individual, uh, and therefore made it uh, a very um, uh, kind of unwieldy or disharmonious uh, relation, that this would be the case. Now, one sees this especially in Canada, uh, where you have two, originally two founding nations, English and French, which turn out to be English Protestants and French Catholics, and then we talk about original peoples, uh, and then we talk about others uh, coming in. So that the question about Sharia law, uh, somebody in the United States, I'm sure, is raising that question as well, but in Canada, it's going to have much more resonance uh, than it is precisely because there is a much deeper tradition of a notion of, uh, of communal rights. And I think that that, when one, when one sees that and one understands it, uh, that does the right of an individual, like the case of the, the high school in Oshawa, of an individual, trump the right of the community, especially since that individual is voluntarily a member of that community. Uh, then I think that you have uh, a, 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 an imbalance between individual rights and, 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 and communal rights. Thank you very much.
I invite you all to a reception just outside as well as to the second in this series of talks next week.